Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Amplify Your Business. Today, we're talking to an entrepreneur who has a very unique story. He started his entrepreneurial journey in Russia, and now he finds himself in the U.S. And so we're going to compare and contrast a little bit of his experiences on both sides of that very interesting cultural, I guess, divide and also talk to him about his business, which is really going to revolutionize the alternative fuel market. And so with me today is Alexei Belchikova. The Belchikov. Did I get that right? Belchikov. Yeah, that's correct. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thank you so much. And uh, sorry for having a little uh, flub up there with regard to the your last name. It's always a challenge for me to pronounce. Uh, some it's harder one for the Russians, don't worry. <laughs> so now when it comes to you, you are the founder and CEO of your company. You've been an entrepreneur since uh, full time since like 2007. So you have lots of years under your belt. And uh, I'm really curious how you would answer this question, which is one I love to ask all of our guests. And that is, what are three things that you think every entrepreneur should know? Um, well, it's a very broad question, as, as you know. Um, and um, I, I would kind of try to answer it in a way, whatever entrepreneurs should know before beginning, mm -hmm. uh, before beginning their, their kind of before launching their venture. Um, so one thing is uh, the market. You know, what is your audience? Who are you selling to? Who are you serving, if, if you will? Uh, really important. A lot of people have a very theoretical understanding of it. And it might be fine for some time, but as quickly as you can, make it practical. Go talk to them, you know, make sure that you actually understand what they want. Um, number two is understand where your money is going to come from, which may or may not be the customers. Uh, mm. I'm, I'm very happy um, uh, that in one of my first ventures, actually the one that I started in 2007, uh, we had a customer in the prepayment even before we incorporated. Uh, so that is the ideal. He, to be honest, I wasn't able to replicate that particular setup ever since, but <laughs> I wish everybody could. Right? Yeah. And the third thing is, is uh, who are you going to do it with? What is your team? What are your partners? Uh, are they compatible with your values? Or are their values compatible with your values? Uh, are you complementary in terms of your skill? You're enhancing each other or you're kind of uh, dragging each other down. This is, I mean, it's a very uh, uh, important discussion to have kind of with yourself and then with them. Uh, yeah. And uh, it might be revealing in ways they don't expect. Well, and, and that one, I think we're going to get into when we talk a little bit more about your journey and, and, you know, a partner that you recently had to buy out because of some differences there and so on. And so that's going to be really interesting. I'd like to go back, though, to your number two, which was where the money is, because sometimes it's not your customer. Can you uh, explain that uh, part of that, uh, I guess, statement a little bit more? I mean, in, in North America or, or in many, uh, let's say, Western countries, uh, you can ask and, and uh, get a grant uh, if what you're doing is kind of aligned with what uh, the government is interested in. And sometimes you want to twist your venture a little bit, I mean, not too much, but a little bit to, uh, to get that grant and uh, help uh, your venture get off the ground. Uh, obviously, you can also uh, raise investor money, which, depending on the climate, may be easier or harder. But, uh, there you go. 
Yeah. Okay. And that's what I was wondering if there was a, a grant angle to that, because I'd imagine with your current business, Universal Fuel Technologies, that that is something that you've probably been able to tap into, or you're thinking that you're going to be able to some of the government programs some of the grants and so on that are surrounding alternative energies, right? Yeah, we're hopeful. I mean, we have applied for a grant. We haven't heard back yet. It's uh, not until May that they will announce uh, and we will yeah. probably apply for more. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's good. Now, in terms of, of your business, then universal fuel technologies, what is it that you're trying to solve there? Um, and what is it that you guys, you know, do, I guess, with that business? Well, it's, it's pretty simple. The, the world um, needs more renewable fuels and, and uh, there aren't enough of them right now. Uh, mm -hmm. And that there's uh, a general, you know, a person who's not involved in the industry might infer from all of the talk that uh, we're ready to wash in those fuels, but it's definitely not the case. Uh, we need more of these fuels. We need more technologies to make these fuels. And uh, it's very much a work in progress. So that is the kind of the problem we're solving, uh, general shortage of renewable fuels. And how do you go about solving that then? What role is it that universal fuel technologies will play in that? Uh, we have a technology. We were a, a chemical technology platform to make these fuels. So we have developed something and we're hoping to perfect and uh, improve that. And uh, so that our fuels would be both accessible uh, and, uh, you know, just good quality. And, and you say it in the plural form, so fuels. So talk to me a little bit about that, because a lot of the companies that, you know, that I've had the pleasure of talking to some of the founders, they're usually, you know, have a singular focus. They're focused on one type of alternative fuel. Yes. Uh, thank you, Lance. This is actually a very important aspect because... Uh, in the, if, if you look at the context of how the fuel market and fuel industry evolves, uh, and if you take kind of not a 10 year horizon, but uh, like a million year horizon, uh, you would see that the fossil fuels of today have originated from, uh, different processes that took place over the millennium, right? They, uh, like dinosaurs walked and, and they died and they were consumed by the bugs and they, you know, everything sort of went down somewhere and brewed in some chemical way. And then, yeah. you know, a million years later, there we are drilling and finding a fairly uniform chemical substance in there. And there's still differences, but compared to what we will see in the uh, uh, renewable uh, industry and renewable feeds, that stuff underground is very uniform. Uh, and so it was easy to, you know, once you've drilled and produced that, that liquid, it's easy to chemically manipulate it in, in different ways and make what you want. Now, with the renewable market and renewable feeds, basically you have to accelerate the million-year-long process into like one year. Uh, hmm. You have to have you have to take something that is living and, and you know either running or, or growing today, and a year hence it should be kind of a bottled standardized fuel. Okay. And that is a kind of a pretty involved chemical process. You really have to force that green leaf through the evolutions to come to the fuel. And so that also means that, I mean, and, and this green leaf or, or, or an animal or something, it takes a lot of different forms, especially in different geographies. Like in the U.S., we have an abundance of uh, corn production that yeah. uh, then transforms into ethanol, that we can take ethanol into, for example, sustainable aviation fuel as one of those fuels, right? In some other place, 
people would have an abundance of, actually also in the U.S., uh, you would have an abundance of um, uh, animal tallow, right? That's a completely different feed, uh, and you cannot put it through the same process, so it has to be a different process. And therefore, a lot of people are focusing, okay, I'm focusing on ethanol, I'm focusing on tallow, I'm focusing on used cooking oil as different feeds, right? So what we're doing, uh, we're actually giving a flexibility to the operator. Uh, we can't really take tallow as itself, but we can take a substream. So somebody is uh, producing, for example, renewable diesel, uh, another type of renewable fuel, or sustainable aviation fuel from animal tallow. Uh, we know that they will have a side stream, a byproduct that is really low value. That is not what they want to produce, but they end up producing anyway for chemical reasons. They, they can't avoid it. And so we can take that and convert it into... Um, a renewable, uh, sustainable aviation fuel, or we can make uh, it into renewable gasoline, or we can make it into uh, a set of uh, renewable chemicals, uh, including, for example, this thing called uh, liquid organic hydrogen carriers, which sounds kind of a pretty scary chemical, chemically, but what it is is actually uh, it's something that allows uh, the hydrogen fuel cells to operate using the existing fuel infrastructure all of your uh, gas stations, pipelines, storage facilities, all can be used to transport hydrogen from wherever it's made to uh, like a truck or locomotive. So long answer to a short question. Well, and I, I'm really fascinated by this because I think this, this from a business standpoint, sounds like a really novel way of using some of those, like you said, low cost and historically low value uh, feedstocks that are byproducts from other processes that you're now going to be able to use to create something that is, has, you know, the highest of values then. Totally true. And, and we're yeah. quite proud of that. Yeah. Yeah. So I can see where the business opportunity lies and why you and your investors are really excited about it. So I'm, I'm curious about your entrepreneurial journey though, because it began in Russia and now you're in uh, California, you're in the U.S., um, and so you've been there for a few years. I'm curious about the comparing and contrasting, you know, the entrepreneurial ecosystem in either country. So what do you see that is similar and what do you see that is different, I guess, uh, within that whole entrepreneurial journey that one takes in either country? Alex, you're asking me to... Uh recount uh, war and peace in, in, in five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> it's a tall uh, order, I understand. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe the cliff notes or the highlights. Anyway. Yeah, well, um, the differences and the similarities. Uh, I mean, the, the only similarity that I can really think of is uh, kind of the, the entrepreneurial uh, endeavor by itself. I mean, people are setting out there, taking risks and trying to build a business. Yeah, uh, hopefully to make some money in the process. Uh, that is probably the only thing that is similar. Uh, I mean, maybe there are smaller things that I can't think of right now, but that's kind of in the grand scheme of things. Uh, if you're condensing word and piece to one page, so that's where you end up. Uh, the differences are like monumental. Uh, I guess the one thing is... Uh, that is actually, uh, I think, also quite valuable in, in the entrepreneurs from the former Soviet Union 
which is, I have to correct you, I wasn't born in Russia, I was born in the Soviet Union. Okay, so yes. I've seen that country disintegrate and, and everything that surrounded it. So um, the one thing that, that differentiates entrepreneurs uh, from that part of the world, from um, somebody who um, didn't have that exposure, is uh, the ability to structure business uh, in such a way that uh, its success does not hinge on the presence or absence of the rule of law. Mm. Uh, right. So it's, you always think, okay, now what can go wrong? And here you, you know, eventually you would say, okay, and then we go to court. Uh, in a place like Russia, it was not always the case. I mean, there was a brief period when, when our courts actually functioned semi decently. Uh, but that period is sadly over. Uh, and, and, uh, it will take a lot of, a lot of time and effort to, uh, get back to, but, so you always, you know, when you realize that the courts would not protect you, then, you know, you have to structure your business uh, to, to design a business model that would basically, uh, for example, make it an attractive to potential raiders. Mm -hmm. um, because like if a business requires uh, the shareholder to be present in some way, then it does make sense to unseat that shareholder or, or to kind of, uh, bite a lot of his share because then he will lose interest and then move on. And so you always think about that. You know, what if our customers do not pay and there is no court? How do you deal with that situation? And, and this is sort of the sort of the sort of thinking that uh, the people who had to build a business in the former Soviet Union they always had to had in mind. You know, what do you do in that case? What do you do in this case? Here in, in, in the North America and basically in the West, you, know, you can always rely on the courts. I mean, if your customers don't pay, okay, you know, you send collectors to them or something like that. Uh, there, you know, you don't want to do this. And sometimes you cannot. Yeah, so sending the collectors is a different, uh, different <laughs> kind of collector coming yeah. in in, in uh, the former Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So in, and, and that's really interesting because, you know, it is difficult enough to, you know, build a business here in North America in the, in Western society where we do have really strong laws. Um, there's, there's so many challenges that one has to overcome in order to find success. And so to have these other elements that are just things that you can't control or variables that are really difficult to, I guess, de-risk. Um, that that must have been just a really difficult thing to navigate through. And so how is it that you landed on this particular type of business? Because I, I know universal fuel technologies is something that, you know, came about in 2022, but the predecessor of that, I think, is what I guess we're talking about. Uh, so in Russia, how was it that you landed on this particular type of business and technology that this was going to de-risk some of those challenges that you just noted? Um, I mean, for, for that reason, uh, one of the things that we um, really liked always was uh, technology-driven business because you need to understand the underlying technology to be able to uh, operate the business. Uh, and so an outside radar would not necessarily uh, want to bother with that. Uh, mm. And uh, so we always looked at, at the technological aspect of things. And uh, uh, one thing that we once found, we uh, 
were friends with a group of scientists who um, made a few uh, interesting discoveries that were that they could not actually commercialize uh, by themselves. It's 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 not a particular kind of Soviet thing. It's scientists are generally, or not generally, but very frequently, not the type of people who are the best at uh, the commerce, uh, and so. Yeah. The, these were not an exception. So they, they came out with this uh, technology they could, that could convert uh, a number of different feeds uh, into some really valuable fuel products. And uh, these scientists actually came to us uh, and said, hey, you know, we see that you uh, are doing good things and you don't seem to be uh, uh, excessively aggressive, so to speak. So we think we can deal with you. So why don't you help us? Um, commercialize our technology uh, and, you know, we can come to um, an arrangement as to who owns what. And so that's what happened. This is what we did. I mean, I'm again compressing War and Peace into one page here. Uh, uh, these scientists are still part of the team. Um, and uh, so this was, you know, we started uh, working with uh, some fairly exotic uh, uh, folks in the uh, fossil fuel industry, exotic as a not a big refiner, but somebody like a small player out there uh, where the logistics would make it difficult for a, a large refiner to serve a particular market. But there yep. would be enough demand for the small player to uh, still kind of operate. And so there is a plenty actually of these small players around the world, not just uh, in the former Soviet Union. Uh, we later developed uh, uh, interest in sort of client base in places like Bangladesh and Nigeria and Paraguay. Uh, and so uh, one thing led to another. Uh, we became a licensor of fossil fuel technology. And then over time, we realized that actually the properties of this technology are very well suited to the renewable world. Um, and we were much more interested to uh, uh, serve the renewable uh, kind of fuel demand that, than the fossil fuel demand. And so, you know, uh, this and the other, and uh, so here we are uh, in the, uh, yeah. the renewable business. Yeah. So I, I'm curious about your assessment of, uh, you know, the degree of entrepreneurialism in either country. Uh, so the Americans, uh, North America in general, but the Americans in particular, you know, really consider themselves to be just incredibly entrepreneurially minded and that they they, uh, you know, uh, are always creating all sorts of innovations and everything else, right? So they're very proud of that. And I'm just curious if it's similar in Russia or if there is less of an entrepreneurial spirit there. Um, because I would think that out of necessity, it, it's going to breed entrepreneurial thinking, but then without the right structure, it might dampen it. So I'm curious what your thoughts are there. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, uh, another long answer up here. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's not entirely, I mean, like it's an evolving situation. Uh, like th there was a time, uh, in Russia where entrepreneurship was kind of an honorable profession. It was a very brief period of time. Hmm. Uh, and, uh, shortly thereafter, I mean, as you know, Russia had the misfortune of having the same president since, like, I don't know, my oldest son is, uh, who is what? My God, 24. So he is as old as, as Putin has been in power. He was born in the same year as Putin came to power. So he never saw another Russian president, right? Uh, 
And so it has been uh, uh, a part of uh, Putin's culture and, and what he tried to kind of uh, successfully, unfortunately, instill in the country is that uh, entrepreneurship is something shameful, uh, mm. which is kind of an old Soviet attitude. You know, if, if you're not laboring out in the field or, or, or doing something, you know, at a factory or, or you're not a scientist, then, you know, what are you? Uh, it was it wasn't really a noble profession at all. And so unfortunately, kind of devol it devolved uh, into that now again. Uh, and uh, an entrepreneur has gradually become someone who is uh, doing a less than honorable uh, thing out there. So, yeah. Yeah, that's uh, interesting, right? The way that uh, that one can can shift the cultural perception of a profession. Yeah. So, how did you find yourself? How did you find yourself in uh, California then? That was a kind of a chain of coincidences. Um, uh, I had a friend here uh, who um, basically suggested to uh, do some business together and. Uh, so I moved over and then that business doesn't work out, but um, I stayed. So. And and so then the relationships that you had back uh, in Russia, then you were able to then parlay that into this new venture, Universal Fuel Technologies. And we were talking before we hit the record button, a little bit of some of the challenges that you had in the sense that you end up having to uh, buy out a partner because some differences in, in uh, philosophy and that. Can you talk to us a little bit about that and the challenges that, you know, geography and culture and the war, uh, the Ukraine-Russian war, uh, how that plays into the, you know, story behind universal fuel technologies? Yeah, well, we uh, were and we are several partners. Today, we're three. Uh, and uh, there was this other guy, and, and we worked for, for a number of years, not very closely. Uh, you know, over time, we kind of started to part ways. And um, as the war broke out a year ago, uh, it became clear that he is uh, sort of on the other side. He is actually supportive of, of the aggression and uh, the things that surrounded it. And uh, it became clear that we could not work together, especially because one of my other partners uh, is Ukrainian. Um, and uh, it just uh, wasn't, wasn't a workable situation. So we decided not to uh, let it uh, ferment into a, into a full-blown conflict and uh, brought the other guy out. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting, right? Because I hear of a lot of different reasons for, uh, you know, partnerships dissolving. This is the first time I've talked to somebody that, you know, a war and then having a different philosophy uh, has created that. And I'm sure that has happened quite a bit, actually, because of this. And probably historically, there's been a lot of that as well. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's interesting. You know, partnerships are difficult to begin with. And then you throw a war in there that's going to divide people in terms of philosophy. It's uh, it's it's just one more thing that entrepreneurs have to overcome as we're building our businesses. Yeah, it's really interesting. So um, I'm also curious in terms of your company right now. So um, you are your scientists are back in in Russia. You're building the business here in in the U.S. and you're planning on 
um, you know, bringing some of those partners over as well as, as relocating the lab and so on. Uh, can you tell me, you know, if, if you could do something differently, you know, as you've been going through this journey thus far, what would you have done differently to maybe have uh, position the company for growth faster or for, um, you know, success quicker? Um, I think one thing that we could have done um, is we could have pivoted towards renewables uh, earlier on. It kind of okay. that, that, that pathway, it, it wasn't obvious in the beginning, but nothing's obvious in the beginning, but it was open to us and we knew that our technology could be used in this way. It's just that we kind of, we never thought that this was, uh, that people are going to want that. Hmm. And so this is something that we should have been more attentive to. Uh, we were too focused on serving our existing clients and, and not focused enough on exploring different kind of uh, different products and different client segments. And this is what we should have done earlier. And this would also have helped us to uh, make the decision of moving over to the U.S. Uh, much quicker. And it's still, I mean, we, we, you know, the, the key person is, is coming over uh, here as, as early as next week. And, uh, you know, the, the other people who want to come over, they're also kind of in process of transitioning. Um, but it obviously would have been much easier done if, if that happened five years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Hindsight is always twenty twenty, right? Precisely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's difficult. So I, I'm curious now if somebody were to drop, you know, a big investment into your lap, a, a lump sum. I don't know if that's a million dollars, if that's $10 million. I'm not too sure what you need with the scale of your business right now, but if it was a substantial amount of money that could really make a difference, it would allow you to, to really, you know, pivot your company to, to the, the, to reaching those goals that you might have with it sooner. What would you do with that big lump sum of money tomorrow if you had it? Oh, we'll build the lab immediately. Yeah. And that's what we need. Yeah. Yeah. So right now, the lab being in Russia, you're still able to do the research and everything, but just having the proximity. No, really. I mean, it's, we basically, we had to abandon it. So. Oh, okay. I see. Yeah. So that's definitely a huge part because obviously your IP is going to be tied up in the research, right? Well, luckily, I mean, we, uh, uh, we didn't do all the right moves, but we did some of the right moves. Uh, so the IP itself is, is uh, sitting uh, outside of Russia uh, and has been sitting outside of Russia for, for a number of years now. So that that is the easier part of things. Um, the uh, physical lab, yes, we had to abandon, and that's kind of sad, but, well, at least the people are there. So when the people, you know, they, they can move uh, if they choose to. So Yeah. Yeah. So now if you were able to send a letter back in time to your younger entrepreneurial self, what would you include in that letter? So maybe the letter back to 2007 when you uh, went full time as an entrepreneur. Oh, move to the U.S. now. This, this would be it. Yeah. It was like uh, it was there was a number of friends who asked me, you know, after I moved and, you know, different stages and so on, you know, what do you think and so on. And like, it was one advice that I always give, uh, you know, do it quick. Uh, it's like, there's absolutely no point lingering there. 
Um, it, you know, the country may come around at one point, but uh, it's very unclear how long that will take. And mm -hmm. uh, it might become very interesting once it becomes a kind of a normal country. Uh, but, you know, do you want to waste your time waiting? Yeah, so the opportunities that you can you can seize are much better outside of the country at this particular point in time then. I mean, financially, not necessarily so. Uh, I'm hearing that uh, people who uh, feel comfortable with the current uh, regime are there and they're making money and everything's good for them financially. I'm not entirely certain how they can live with themselves, but, uh, you know, it's not up to me to judge. Um, yeah, yeah, Putin takes care of his friends from what it sounds like anyway. Yeah, right? not, yeah. not only friends, I mean, obviously the friends too, but uh, if, if you're generally kind of supportive of, of that uh, thing that he's doing, uh, you can probably, you know, make a decent living uh, as an entrepreneur. But um, again, I mean, if, if you can live with yourself doing that. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you very much for sharing your story, Alexi. It's fascinating to hear you compare and contrast the two countries and the experience as an entrepreneur and the challenges that one needs to overcome there and how it is different here. And, and uh, you know, one of the things that we as entrepreneurs need to remember uh, when we are faced with those darkest of dark days here in North America and the struggles and the challenges that we have here is to recognize, I think, that, you know, it, it's actually a pretty good environment for entrepreneurial uh, ventures and, and, uh, you know, to find that success. And, and so it, it can always be more difficult elsewhere. <laughs> and exactly. so this is an example of that. Yeah. So yeah. thank you for sharing those stories. If somebody wanted to reach out to you and connect and learn more about universal, uh, fuel technologies, what would be the best way for them to do that? Email. I think you have my email. So. Okay. We'll include the email in, uh, in the show notes and obviously people can head over to your website which is uh una unifuel.tech right correct yeah so that's u-n-i-f-u-e-l.tech well thank you very much i really appreciate you taking the time alexi and for those of you who are listening today if you enjoyed this episode and want to hear other entrepreneurial stories and learn some lessons along the way from what they have experienced then head over to our archives at amplifyyourbusiness.ca that's where you're going to find all of our past episodes and future ones and if you uh, search amplify your business on your favorite podcasting platform you'll find our episodes there as well until next time everybody have a prosperous day and thank you once again alexi.